Welcome to Investments Unplugged. Before we get started, this commentary is for general information purposes only, and clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Thank you, and listen on. And Peter's going to cut out any of the nonsense I say? Absolutely. Excellent. It has been, to say the least, a challenging year and a very interesting year thus far for the equity markets worldwide. Following the fourth quarter correction, deep correction, that saw 19.8% wiped off of the S&P 500 from top to bottom, the markets recovered in a very, very sharp manner through April. Now, since then, however, there's been a lot of geopolitical events that have created a lot of uncertainty with respect to the future direction of the global economy, the future direction of equity markets, and in particular, a standoff between China and the United States with respect to trade. Now, this trade uncertainty with the largest and second largest economies in the world is having an effect globally. We're starting to see this, and it raises questions as to how we should perhaps be positioned through the remainder of 2019. For more of this, listen on. This is Investments Unplugged. Welcome to Investments Unplugged. I'm your host, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist with Manulife Investment Management. And I'm running solo today. My colleagues, Makan Nia and Kevin Hedlund, unfortunately cannot make it. But we will be joined by a couple of other guests. Jamie Robertson, Head of Canadian Asset Allocation at Manulife Investment Management. And his partner in crime, Alex Richard, who is a portfolio manager with the Asset Allocation team also in Toronto. But before we get to that, it is time for the segment of what you need to know. And my what you need to know ties into what we discussed in the intro, which is some of the consequences that we're starting to see in the economic data, we believe, as a result of the trade tensions between the United States and China. Now, these trade tensions include tariffs on $250 billion in goods imported into the United States from China and the potential threat for tariffs on an additional $300 billion in goods that would be exported from China into the United States. Now, our thought on this as we were getting into it is this creates a fair bit of uncertainty. If you're a CEO, if you are uh, a, a manager of any sort, if you're running a business and part of that business involves trade or purchasing some type of equipment or involving China in your supply chain, well, what do you do? If the prices for your goods that you're buying just went up by 25% because of the tariffs imposed on them, do you continue to buy? What does that do to your profit margins? What does that do to your sales? Can you pass that on to your clients and so on? And so we were wondering, and and our, our general thesis was that we were going to start to see this turn up in the economic data. And, and what we meant by that is you were going to start to see trade weaken. We were going to see manufacturing weaken. And it was an indication that business was on hold until we get greater clarity. Well, at the end of May, at the beginning of June, we saw that in terms of the global purchasing managers indices. Now, this is a piece of economic data that we track. In our view, it is a good leading indicator to earnings growth for the coming six months when you measure earnings growth on a year-over-year basis. 
And what it's telling us is that, yes, businesses are slowing down their activity. And we've seen this across Europe. We've seen this in the United States. We've seen this in Asia, such that the Global Purchasing Managers Index is at its lowest level since 2012. If we look across the various country indices, we're seeing a lot of the way we classify it in terms of a heat map, a lot of orange in there that shows that manufacturing not only is not growing, but it's in fact contracting. What we have to do, what we have to pay attention to is what this means for earnings growth going forward. Historically, a weakening PMI results in weakening earnings growth and earnings expectations already for 2019 are low and recently they've been ratcheted a little bit lower. So if this continues, we need to pay a little bit more attention to our asset allocation. We could potentially see greater downside. And from a downside perspective, what we mean by that is a correction in equities adjusting for the weaker expectations out of earnings growth. What that would mean is perhaps focusing a little bit more defensively in our portfolio, or at the very least not being as aggressive into the equity markets, perhaps through the remainder of 2019. So that's my what you need to know. And I think that will also lead in very, very well to the conversation that we're having today. And this conversation is going to be all around asset allocation, asset allocation positioning. And answering that question, is the glass half full or half empty? Now, I think, uh, I think I've made it clear in terms of my view on where the, the level uh, sits in that glass. But joining me will be our colleagues, Jamie Robertson and Alex Richard to go a little bit deeper into what they see through the remainder of this year, and more importantly, how they're positioned within their asset allocation portfolios. Welcome back to Investments Unplugged. Joining me today are my colleagues and friends, Jamie Robertson, head of Canadian Asset Allocation, and Alex Richard, portfolio manager with the Asset Allocation team. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Thank Thanks you for having us. It's been a, an interesting year. It's been a good year from the first quarter perspective or the first four months of the year where we recovered pretty much everything. Actually, we hit new highs on the S&P 500, uh, rebounding off of the lows of Christmas week. And I would argue that there's been a shift in what drove the correction and the recovery and where we are today. And a lot of that has to do with geopolitical risk. So this is what uh, the first question I have for you in terms of how you consider the geopolitical environment when you are determining your asset allocation. Sure. So if you go back to how uh, our investment process works, you know, the things we tend to look at are valuations, corporate and economic fundamentals, sentiment and technical analysis. So geopolitical risk, for the most part, kind of falls outside of our our process. So as a result, we don't really trade on headline news, largely because geopolitical events are uh, largely unpredictable. So we've had a couple events over the last couple of years uh, that can point to that. So if you look at the 2016 elections in the United States or Brexit, uh, those outcomes were materially different than what was priced into consensus at the time. And even then, the market reaction also was quite different than what would, most people would have anticipated uh, beforehand. So how do we approach it? Well, typically what we do is we manage according to the eventual outcome. So avoid taking large tactical positions ahead of such a, such a large event. 
And then uh, once we have a better understanding, once we have a conclusion to that event, then we'll take a look at what are the implications for uh, you know, economic and, and corporate fundamentals. And if there's no impact there, then there's no impact on, on the way we would position our portfolios. So same, similar to the way we think about it, I mean, there's always going to be some type of geopolitical event. There's always going to be something that investors can grab hold of and say, that's a reason we need to sell. I would argue that most of the geopolitical events that we've seen over the last almost 100 years don't have an economic consequence. So what we're seeing now, though, in terms of a trade standoff between the United States and China, the United States perhaps in Europe, the United States in Mexico, the United States in, in many areas around the world, it does seem, though, that in, in some of the data it is starting to have an economic consequence. Does First, what's your thought from that? That's a good question. So... If you look at the direct impact from uh, you know, how much it impacts GDP, for example, the, the tariffs up to this point are probably going to impact US GDP by 50 basis points, which in the grand scheme of thing, an economy that's got a potential output of 2 to 3%, that's, that's not a major hit to overall growth. Uh, the biggest risk with these kind of events is, is the potential confidence shocks as a result of these events. Um, so there's always a risk that that will impact, for example, consumer confidence and business confidence. And in turn, that will weaken you know, the extent to which consumers are willing to spend and for the business side, uh, what their CapEx and, and hiring intentions are going to be in the following year. So that's really the biggest risk there. Uh, it's often the indirect costs and indirect risks, which are a bigger tail risk than the actual event itself. Yeah, and I think, and I think that our process really does capture it very well, which was when you go through these periods when the market is completely focused on on the type of events that Alex is describing that are very difficult to gauge, very difficult to anticipate what the outcome is going to be, what's really being manifested that we can identify is changes in the technical picture. So when we think about our four pillars, we've got technicals, we've got sentiment, we've got we've got fundamentals, and we got and we've got macro. So if you have a, a, a sort of a steady state and all of a sudden you get some sort of geopolitical event or geopolitical concerns that manifests itself in the marketplace, the fundamentals aren't changing necessarily. The macro environment aren't, isn't necessarily changing at that particular point, but the, the sentiment indicators that we watch and the technical indicators that we watch could be changing quite dramatically. And as a result of that, we sometimes are able to take advantage of these type of things and turn them into, a, into an opportunity as we see that the markets are getting extremely oversold or that sentiment is, is gets to the extent that it's completely bombed out, for lack of a better word, that is a time when we can get a little bit more, um, sharpen our pencils a little bit more and see whether there's some opportunities in there. And we've had an example last year, um, you know, with the Brazilian election, which was there were two of those pillars, which was the fundamentals were still very, very constructive and the macro were still very constructive. But the markets got massively oversold and sentiment was horrible heading into those elections. And we were able to, to take advantage of that. And we'll just continue to do that. If we see something that's, that, that you get a price move or a sentiment move that's so vastly out of proportion with what's actually going on from, from that risk perspective, then that, that creates an opportunity for us. So we, we welcome it. So would you say one of those opportunities then presented itself in the fourth quarter of last year? I think the, la the fourth quarter of last year was a little bit trickier. You know, I think that in retrospect, it's pretty clear that, that the markets were responding to the potential of a policy error on the part of the Fed. Rates were coming off very, very rapidly. And then heading into that final part of December, you saw basically a 10 or 12% decline in the S&P over a, 
over a period of time when generally the markets go to sleep, sort of that uh, that time between the 15th of December and the 24th of de- de- December. So that was that was more difficult to capitalize because liquidity was more of an issue. The markets were moving so much more rapidly, and as such. Um, that was really the driver of that, which was which was basically the increase in interest rates that the Fed was orchestrating. When they pivoted, then that was then that was what what led to this basically an, an uncorrected almost twenty three percent rally in the markets. And every time the Fed pivots, it seems that the market is responding, which brings us back to the comment: "You'll never fight the Fed." In October, Polos was very positive on the economy. He made some uh, strong comments towards that, and then. We saw the dip in terms of uh, market activity. There was also trade tensions that started to emerge in the fourth quarter. And then at the end of December, that's when the Fed seemed to reverse course and, and said, you know, well, we're probably done with the tightening. The market rallied. Just recently, we've seen a little bit of volatility. Top to bottom, market was down about 6 6.5%, somewhere around there. And again, the pivot seemed to come when, when the Fed indicated that, you know, cuts might actually be on the table through 2019 if the global economy and how that relates to the U.S. economy slows down enough. And then the market responded to that. Um, Do you think the Fed cuts this year? I think the Fed cuts this year. I think the Fed will cut because the markets are basically mandating them to at this particular point. I think within the the greater arc of, of the last couple of years, late 2016, the Fed had had many opportunities to to tighten. Um, it finally did it. It was confident enough to, to add a little bit of tightening to the system or some normalization, depending on how you want to characterize it. And I think that their approach was basically that you, you sort of tighten until something other bends or something breaks. And what they found was in that fourth quarter that the feedback that they got from the marketplace was that things were starting to, to bend. Um, so what do they do? They stop, um, they, re- they reassess, um, and now they're 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 pivoting, and they're pivoting because the bond market and the and the fixed income market have already basically signaled to them that there's concern about decreased inflation expectations. There's concern about growth. The perception is that we're late-ish or or late in the cycle, um, and I think as a result of that, the the markets have completely discounted, I guess, three easings at this particular point. And generally speaking, when the market does that, the Fed takes advantage of it and 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 will follow. So. I don't necessarily believe that that it's going to come in June. I think there's a you know there's a fair probability that comes in June, a higher probability in July. I don't know the the exact timing of it, but I think that that unless we get a, a a serious change in the context of the fixed income markets, I think the Fed will go ahead and follow the markets and 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 ease a little bit here. Well, it is interesting that you mentioned that, and it does seem that there's a bit of a a deviation, a strong deviation or a difference of opinion between the fixed income markets and, and the equity markets in the health of the overall U.S. economy, the health of the global economy, in that we have yields on the U.S. 10-year Treasury that are sitting at around, I think, 220 around there today. Um, beginning of the year, they were 275. You know, now we're sitting at a level on the S&P 500 that is near, we're only probably a couple percent away from the all-time high. Uh, and so you, you have this difference of opinion. Do you have a view on which one is right? Uh, are the bond markets pricing in greater economic risk than the equity markets are realizing? Um, difficult to say. You know, in, it'll be easier in retrospect, but that, that's for certain. Hindsight. Yes, indeed. But I think that, you know, when I think about, about you know, the bond market in general, I think one thing we learned last year was that three and a quarter is probably the, the, the top end of, of where rates would get to. 
Um, and certainly from an asset allocation perspective, the conversations we were having was that given our expected returns for U.S. equities over the next five years, if we had gotten to maybe three and a half percent on 10-year notes, perhaps that would have been an interesting place to, to allocate capital away from equities in favor of fixed income. Obviously, there were large enough participants in the market who, whose threshold for that move was 325, um, and, and they moved in. Um, and the, the, the takeaway from that is that the secular bull market in rates, that long-standing decline in rates that we've seen in the United States, it goes back basically everyone's entire career, um, is, is very much intact. Now, this more shorter-term move that we've seen, I think, has been a function of a number of things. Number one being, you know, no order of importance necessarily, but diminished inflation expectations, um, concerns around growth, geopolitical risk, as you alluded to, a little bit of a flight to quality going on. Um, and then at the same time, you've got relative value where the U.S. is, is the, the highest yielding government bonds um, virtually across the developed world. So there's always going to be a bit of a magnet towards people who are prepared to, to buy uh, fixed income in, in currencies on an unhedged basis if they're non, non-U.S. domicile. So I think it was a number of things that all came came together at the same time. But the forces are that we're into a lower for longer environment. We thought maybe last year that that might have been, that cycle had been changing. Um, but, but we just are now in a situation where rates are low and they're going to continue to be low. And yes, they can back up from here. Um, and there may be some disappointments from the Fed going forward in terms of not keeping with the program. But really, we're into a world where we can probably expect 10-year notes in the U.S. to be somewhere between 2.5 and 2.60. And that should help the housing market. It should help the overall economy and, and should help the equity markets as a result of that. So I think the equity markets are, are interpreting it as, as, the, as interest rates are, are, are providing a lot of stimulus to the economy at this particular point, And the market will, will be able to respond to that. Alex, I want to come to you in terms of uh, when we talk about the geopolitical events and talk about asset allocation, what's the most important thing to stop yourself from doing in these times when you're getting the Twitter feed, you're getting the headlines, you're getting everything that can really shatter your confidence? What are the mistakes that you want to avoid? The way I look at it is, is you really need to focus on the hard data. The hard data will, will rarely mislead you and the headlines probably will. Um, so that's, that's the number one thing. We always go back to our process and what, that will help you steer through those really volatile times. Yeah, I think that our process really does a, does a very good job of, of picking up on signal as opposed to noise. And really what, what we basically live in on a day-to-day basis when you consider you know, the, the, the type of, of rhetoric that comes out and the type of, of, of news flow that we're getting, there's just a lot of noise in the market at this point. And if you've got a process like we do that allows you to filter out that noise and focus on the signal, as Alex says, you know, focusing on the hard data goes a, goes a very long way to, to uh, avoiding getting sucked into that, that, um, that maelstrom of, of emotion. And your bond question, I think, spoke a little bit to that, right? So when we look at the bond market today, you know, we look at what's priced in. So Jamie spoke about the fact that there's three rate cuts priced in. He talked about that there's a probability of a rate cut as soon as July, which is close to 84% today. The yield curve is basically flat, which implies, you know, very muted growth and in inflation expectations going forward. You know, inflation break-evens are 1.6%, running well below CPI today, which is around two. So that's how we look at it. We, we really go back to the data and, and compare and, and see what's really priced into those, those asset markets. On the bond question and, and the Fed, because um, I, I do think this is a really interesting one. When I look at the data, I struggle to justify a rate cut as soon as the market is suggesting. When you have unemployment sub 4% in the United States, the consumer 
probably at the healthiest they've been in a couple decades. Um, business has been slowing down, but it's not contracting. The economy is not contracting. Like Q1 at 3.2% was actually a, a decent pace. Now that's probably not going to what not going to be what we see in the second quarter um, because some of the other data that's coming in. But does it is the Fed really justified based on the data? to cut rates in this environment? So it depends what you're what you're focused on. So I completely agree with you that the domestic economy in the United States is exceptionally strong. If you look at the, the labor market with unemployment rate at 3.6%, that's a very good point. Really strong, initial claims quite low, uh, wages quite strong at, at 3%, consumption still quite healthy around 3%, financial conditions are still easy for the most part, you know, um, Spreads are still quite low. The dollar is kind of range-bound. Volatility is low. Monetary conditions are still relatively accommodative. So I agree from that perspective that the domestic economy is quite strong. But once you start looking at the more external-facing sectors of the economy, if you start looking at manufacturing and the industrial sector and the export sector, those areas of the U.S. economy are a lot weaker. And given the weakness in those international markets, I think there's a bit of a risk that the Fed is going to try to insulate itself from by potentially easing monetary conditions from where we are today. Now, let me you know, close off this, this segment or this side of the conversation with this then. The Fed cuts rate. Does that do anything to change the environment? I mean, we can argue that, that interest rates are, are still are relatively low. If the Fed funds rate is 2.5, you know, you're cutting you know, 25 basis points. In theory, you're cutting them by 10%. Uh, with a 25 basis point move. But is that the issue? Is that, you know, liquidity is tight? Does that solve anything? Or does that just put that Fed put in place, solidify the market and and hopefully improve confidence? I think that that is a great question because I think that what we have seen, so we're nine years or 10 years into this economic expansion. And every time that we've seen a situation where there have been efforts on the part of central banks or government authorities to do anything to tighten or normalize economic conditions or, or financial conditions. You've had a response mechanism from the market that's been very quick. So when you think about the tariffs that have gone on, gone in for the last couple of years, you know, it started off with dishwashers and with, with South Korea. What happened was prices went up by 16%. You had immediate demand destruction with, with unit sales down 5 or 6%, and, and lo and behold, prices came off immediately afterwards. You know, the Fed has been in tightening mode for a year and a half. It starts to pinch on mortgage rates, and the market responds with lower housing activity. But what we haven't seen over the last nine years is any incremental stimulus put into the economy or lower interest rates. So we don't know whether the Fed at this particular point is truly pushing on a string and it will just have no impact. We do know that when there's any tightening going on, it has an impact. So when we do see that ease, we will have to see whether indeed, you know, you, you do see a, a response from the economy. But I would also point out that this is basically what we're going through here is, is the fourth time that we've seen a bit of a blip in this, in this recovery. You know, you had 2011, you had you had a, a good pullback on the debt issue, and you got Brexit, Europe. Yeah, yeah you had Brexit, and then we had in you know in, in 2013 we got the government sequester. In 2015 we had we had China slowing down and deleveraging. Each one of those times was accompanied by a decline in earnings, a, a, you know a, a big change in sentiment in the marketplace or among investors. 
And here we are, and this is sort of the fourth time that it's happening. Now, you can't keep doing this indefinitely, but, but the trend has been that this has been a very muted recovery. Um, it's been a very long recovery. It's not been completely smooth. We have had instances like this in the past, and each time we've, done, we've had them, we have actually turned around and, and recovered. And as Alex points out, there's a lot of things that are very healthy in the environment now with the consumer being healthy and the job market being healthy and participation rate still not anywhere near long-term highs or anything along those lines. So there's some very positive dynamics that could continue on here. So we'll just have to see how the economy responds when the Fed actually fires one of those bullets and, and see if there's any impact. Jamie, Alex, you know, this has been a great conversation. I want to continue this. We're, we're running up against uh, our time um, for this podcast, but I want to get deeper into, okay, so we've set the stage for how we treat geopolitical risks. What are some of the events that are putting pressure uh, on, on sentiment um, and putting pressure on the Fed? Will they cut? Won't they cut? What will it do if, uh, if they do or do not? Will you gentlemen stick around so we can go a little bit deeper into asset allocation? Be happy to. Absolutely. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Okay. So with that, we're going to close off this segment, um, but we will be back in part two with Jamie and Alex. Geopolitical risk is something that often comes up in presentations and conversations with clients. It's the number one thing that people point to as a reason why we should be more conservative with respect to investing in, in our asset allocation. I think the conversation that we had with Jamie and Alex helps show that while geopolitical risk occasionally can impact the fundamentals, largely it is noise. And as a result of that, while you should be aware of it, you shouldn't let geopolitical risk on its own guide your investment decisions. You stick to the process, stick to the fundamentals, and as the fundamentals change, if at all, as a result of the geopolitical risk, then and only then do you start to make a shift in your portfolios. I think that's something very, very valuable for us to walk away with. And this is something that we apply in our asset allocation modeling is that there will always be something that we can focus on to the downside. There will always be some reason that we can create to be more conservative in our portfolios. But those reasons over the last hundred years that we have looked at don't often turn into a fundamental risk. And a fundamental risk is a risk that affects the economies around the world, whether it be U.S. economy, Chinese economy, global economy overall, that would then affect earnings growth or profitability, profit margins and so on, or valuation. If we don't have that connection, geopolitical risk is nothing more than noise. Alternatively, on the fixed income side, same thing applies. If the geopolitical risk doesn't impact the economies around the world, it's unlikely to drive rates higher or lower, which would lead to investment decision. So the lesson here, I think, for, for all of us is that while geopolitical risk, I would argue, will always be present and is something that we should pay attention to, it shouldn't in of itself drive our investment actions. Let's think about that for a little bit. Further to the conversation that we had today, we will be sitting down with Alex and Jamie again to go over what they're seeing in their portfolios, what they're doing in their portfolios, aside from what we've done on the geopolitical side. With that, this has been Philip Peterson for Investments Unplugged. Copyright Manulife. 
Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investments to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investments and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife Mutual Funds are managed by Manulife Investments, a division of Manulife Asset Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and perspectives before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed, their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede Know Your Client Suitability, Needs Analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.